This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This symposium on public attitudes to refugees was organised by the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law in conjunction with the Migration Law Program at the Australian National University and the Centre for Refugee Research at the University of New South Wales. The symposium brought together academics, legal centres and social justice organisations to review existing literature on public attitudes to refugees, to learn lessons from other contentious policy areas and to consider new research opportunities relating to public discourse and attitudes about refugees. I'd now like to begin our first session. We have uh, as chair Harriet McHugh Dillon, uh, who is an investigation officer with the Victorian Ombudsman and a trained historian. And she has worked as a consultant for the Victorian Foundation for the Survivors of Torture. She produced the excellent literature review, which many of you will have read, called If They Are Genuine Refugees, Why? Attitudes to Unauthorised Arrivals in Australia. And Harriet will be chairing this first session, and she will firstly provide some introductory remarks about the Foundation House report, why it was undertaken, and particular findings that are relevant to our discussion today. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Claire. Um, how's the sound? Everyone can hear? Um, well, Claire has very kindly invited me to make some opening remarks. So first of all, I'd like to thank Claire, Jane McAdam and all of the organisers at the Caldor Centre, the Centre for Refugee Research at Uni of New South Wales and the Migration Programme of the ANU College of Law for this wonderful and very timely initiative and also the fantastic lineup of speakers you've organised. I think it'll be a very stimulating day. The theme is public attitudes to asylum seekers and refugees, and this morning's session will put that into an international, national and regional Australian context. Um, And in this session, we'll have a little bit of time for questions after each speaker, which I understand will be appearing on the screen as we go. Um, I think it's safe to say we're all here today because we would like to see a more humane refugee and asylum policy and a more respectful public discussion of the issues. And I think there's also a growing recognition that we need a very robust understanding of the evidence base around public attitudes if we wish to engage with them. That was certainly the impetus behind Foundation House's review of the evidence and behind today's symposium. So what do we know about public attitudes to asylum seekers in Australia? Well, we know quite a lot. One of the most striking themes emerging from the research is that people with negative attitudes overwhelmingly express them in terms of fairness or rather unfairness. And I would argue that it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of fairness concerns in public attitudes on this issue. Words like queue jumpers and illegals are so ubiquitous that they've almost lost their meaning for many of us. But the the concepts are incredibly potent and tap into people's deeply held values about justice, their sense of self and the kind of society they live in. Obviously, there are other factors at play as well. The research shows that anti-Islamic sentiment, fear of terrorism and a sense of um, threat to jobs, resources and Australian culture are all strongly related to negative attitudes, as long as certain um, personality traits and demographic factors such as gender and education. But the perception that asylum seekers are committing an injustice isn't just a fig leaf for these other views, and it's something that needs to be understood and engaged with if we, are to, if we hope to change attitudes. 
And this is highlighted by a recent study by Lisa Hartley, who will be presenting this morning, and Anne Pedersen, which compared attitudes to boat arrivals versus refugees who are resettled under the official humanitarian program. They took a very interesting approach of looking at the different emotions that underlie attitudes to the two groups. And they found that um, people who support restrictive policies to asylum seekers tended to express anger and indignation towards them over queue jumping and illegal entry, whereas those who wanted restrictions against resettled refugees described feeling fear of them. So once again, the overwhelming kind of attitude to boat arrivals was based on anger at perceived injustice. A great deal remains unknown about attitudes, but I think the overall message for advocacy is we can't assume that many of the common sense approaches will work in shifting attitudes. The evidence shows that portraying asylum seekers as people like us or encouraging personal contact with them can but doesn't always improve attitudes and in some circumstances can actually be counterproductive. Nor can we assume that just having more positive portrayals in the media or educating people about the right to seek asylum will address people's concerns. One of the areas that might be very useful for researchers to explore is what people mean when they say that asylum seekers are illegal. A lot of advocacy focuses on convincing people that it's not illegal to seek asylum. But when members of the public talk about illegality, at least this is my reading of the, the studies, um, they don't seem to be disputing that. They tend to talk about asylum seekers entering without a visa, associating with criminal people smugglers and not being who they say they are. On top of that, the fact that so many people accuse boat arrivals of not being genuine refugees implies that at some level there is an acceptance that refugees are owed protection. So I think it would be worth really drilling down and asking people whether they think there are any circumstances in which people fleeing persecution might legitimately enter Australia for the purposes of seeking asylum. One way to do that might be to compare attitudes to asylum seekers who arrive by plane versus those who come by boat, which to my knowledge hasn't been done yet. It might help to understand whether people object to the act of seeking asylum itself, if plane arrival is also seen as queue jumping, or whether the concerns are more about the um, perceived cr criminality associated with arriving by boat. So that's a very brief um, reflection on attitudes in Australia. This morning's session um, will explore in depth what we know about international, national and regional attitudes. And I'll, I'll hand over to our first speaker, Dr Lisa Hartley, who is going to provide some international reflections. Lisa is a lecturer at the Centre for Human Rights Education at Curtin University. Her research focuses on social justice issues, including the experiences of asylum seekers and refugees in Australia and understanding the factors that predict prejudice and racism to marginalised groups. Well, it's really lovely to be here today and I um, just wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we meet today and pay my respects to the elders past and present. Um, I'm really pleased to be back in Sydney. This is my hometown. I wasn't liking the cold weather at the beginning of the week, but it's beautiful now. And I'd also like to really thank the, um, the organisers of today's symposium. I think the focus is really timely. At, at no time in history have we had um, asylum seeker policies so, um, so terrible in this country. And this toxic kind of political environment is reinforced by negative uh, public opinion, resulting in this kind of self-perpetuating cycle in which politicians make policy based on public opinion, and yet public opinion is also influenced by 
by this negative political spin. And of course, we know there's no real simple answer to this, to this conundrum, but as, a, as an academic, but also as a refugee advocate for, for many years, I'm a firm believer that the best kind of solutions and ideas come from when people um, from a diverse, uh, diverse stakeholders, you know, policymakers, community groups, um, academics, and also people who have lived the experience come together to discuss and critically analyse um, the conundrum that we are in. And in terms of the focus of this symposium, as Harriet has said, a large portion of my research is focused on understanding the factors that underpin um, attitudes towards asylum seekers, specifically from a social psychological perspective. Um, of course, the assumption here is that if we don't know what underpins attitudes, how, how are we going to change them? And I guess perhaps a reflection of Australia's pretty harsh political environment for the past 20 years. Australia actually has quite a good body of research about uh, trying to understand what underpins attitudes towards asylum seekers. Uh, Harriet's done a fantastic job in, in highlighting this in the, um, in the literature review. Uh, my colleague Anne Peterson and I also have recently published a paper which looks at um, some of the factors that underpin attitudes, uh, I guess more of a literature review as well, but also looks at how we might try to shift them through um, anti-prejudice kind of um, interventions. But I'm not going to highlight these, well, I won't go into much detail with these because Harriet's already outlined some of them and you also have her great literature review. But these are some of the factors that we know underpin attitudes, um, negative attitudes towards asylum seekers. But in this presentation, I'm going to briefly, really briefly, because I can't, you know, we can't kind of cover the whole entire world in 10 minutes. Um, I'm going to look at some of the factors that under, underpin attitudes towards new arrivals internationally. And obviously, I'm going to be focusing more on, on developed countries as opposed to um, non-developed countries. And I guess you kind of might hypothesise that countries that have different political um, contexts will have varying attitudes towards new arrivals, right? And I, that's the kind of the question that I'm going to be scrutinising today. Um, but, for, but first, I kind of want to make a couple of uh, comments or comments about the caveats or limitations of the international literature. Is that internationally, um, there's a large body of research from a range of disciplines that looks at attitudes towards migrants and immigration more generally. Um, in fact, there's actually not that much international research that looks at asylum seekers specifically. So that's actually quite interesting that in the Australian context, we have this you know, burgeoning body of literature that focuses on asylum seekers. So international researchers could probably learn from us. But the large, so the large majority of the research doesn't differentiate between categories of, of, of migrants, you know, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, etc. And of course, we know from um, my, my own research, and I know Professor Andrew Marcus as well has found that um, there are asylum seekers, attitudes towards asylum seekers is a lot more negative to, um, compared to other categories of migrants. And this has been found in other places, um, such as in the Netherlands, Canada, the UK, and the US. So people who are more likely to fear, feel more negative to people who are un perceived as being unauthorised or illegal, etc. So with these kind of caveats and limitations in mind, I'm just going to first reflect very briefly on some public opinion data that um, from a recent poll taken from a, um, a professional polling firm, um, the transatlantic trends, and just to give an indication of, you know, generally attitudes towards refugees. And I've chosen this one in particular because it's one of the very few that's actually looked at the category of, of refugee as opposed to, to migrants in this sense. Um, and this poll has looked at... Um, 
I was looking at kind of refugee policy. And so this was conducted in 2014. And what they found was that overall, around about 40% of those who, who were polled in Europe and the USA wanted more restrictive refugee policies. And of course, you can make the kind of observation here, well, what are the, what, what are, what are the people who are being polled? What do they understand as refugee policies? But this is, you know, I guess one of the limitations of polling data. You, you don't really know exactly what the person who's been asked, what they're responding to. But nevertheless, 40% um, said that they wanted more restrictive policies. When you're looking at country differences, 50% um, of respondents in Italy, Greece and the UK, or it was around about 50%, supported more restrictive policies. Around 40% of respondents in Poland, France and Sweden supported the country's refugee policies as it stands. And then um, the highest percentage of, resp of respondents wanting less restrictive um, policies were in Germany and the Netherlands. But overall, I guess you can kind of say that, you know, that, that generally people have negative attitudes towards or wanting more, more restrictive policies towards um, in terms of refu refugee policies. Um, so I guess what, what is this kind of poll, what, what is this information telling us? And I guess it begs a question of, well, what, what underpins these, these, these attitudes? And from polling data, it's quite difficult to kind of get a sense of that. And as I've suggested, um, there's a real lack of comparative international literature looking specifically at asylum, at, at asylum seekers and, and refugees. So I, th I think there is some value in looking at the comparative literature, looking, uh, analysing attitudes towards immigrants more generally, because you can kind of, there's this assumption that, that same, similar types of processes are going on. Of course, there are nuances for different categories of, of migrants, such as asylum seekers. So I will reflect just briefly on um, some comparative research that has been done by some, some social psychologists um, that looked at attitudes towards migrants more generally um, from some larger public opinion poll data across Germany, the US and Canada. And of course, they've got, I guess, Canada and the US are similar in the sense that they are countries that have found a have a long history in immigration in Germany only very recently. So presumably they have, um, you know, contrasting um, political environments in that sense. But what this, and, and this, I also chose this study in particular because it did take insights from a range of different disciplines as well, which I think is one of the strengths of this, of this particular study. What they found though, um, despite the fact that there was quite different political environments um, and immigration histories in each country, they actually found very similar um, predictors of negative attitudes across the three countries, which is, um, I guess, kind of surprising in a way, but, but maybe not. And I won't highlight all of them now, but I will, I will highlight a couple of them because they, the, what was also interesting is that many of the predictors of negative attitudes in this study, which has also been supported by, um, by studies um, conducted after, this one has been published, that they're quite similar to what we find in Australia, in a sense. So low, older age and lower education are more, people of older age and lower education are more likely to, to be more negative to, towards, um, towards immigrants. Economic deprivation, now this is a really interesting one because I guess the, one of the most common explanations for opposition to immigration and also, I guess, asylum seekers as well is the appeal to economics. So it's commonly assumed that the economically vulnerable will, resi will resist immigration the most. And of course, this is not entirely wrong, but the, well, the data from this paper and, and other papers as well suggests that um, 
the role of economic factors is, is a little bit more complex than that. And in this sense, it's actually the subjective measure of, um, of economics. So how that person feels in that sense um, to do with this, this concept of group relative deprivation. So as my group as a, an Australian citizen, is it less or better worse, better off than, um, than immigrants or asylum seekers, etc. So that is negative um, attitudes in this sense are the most strongest among those who cannot afford the things that they would like to buy, who think econo the economic situation is poor, and who think migrants are doing better than citizens in that sense. And this is something that, that we find in the Australian research as well. And again, perceived threat to culture and social cohesion, um, political conservatism as well, so more of that kind of ideological belief that a person has um, in terms of the political spectrum, and also um, national identity, which is interesting as well because this is something that comes out from the Australian literature as well, that people who have a stronger sense of Australian identity are more likely to be negative towards um, asylum seekers, but also immigrants more generally. And interesting, sorry, I should have said that the European um, Union identity was not a strong predictor of um, negative attitudes. In fact, it was more positive, which is interesting to note. Um, so while not kind of claiming universality of predictors of negative attitudes, I think there's an interesting trend here to suggest that there's some kind of common commonality between, um, between countries or in terms of uh, what, what underlines negative attitudes. And there are, you know, there's a couple of possible reasons for that. Sorry, it's also supported by other research. Um, there are a couple of other reasons for this that Presumably, immigration and possibly the arrival of new uh, of asylum seekers in this sense involves comparable cultural, political, and um, economic perceived threats to the receiving nation. But also, interestingly, as well, is that anti-immigration prejudice is highly correlated with other types of prejudices, such as anti-homosexuality, um, uh, anti-homeless people, etc. So, again, this 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 idea that there are this I guess, underlying psychological um, processes going on. And as I said, what's really interesting about this research and other researches I've looked at is that a lot of the factors are similar to what we, what we know about in the Australian context as well. But what is missing is what Harriet was talking about, is this sense of, um, of kind of a perceived injustice about the arrival of asylum seekers to Australia. I just want to finally finish on um, just some regional differences, which I thought were really interesting. So we've got this idea that there's similar processes going on in terms of the predictors of negative attitudes towards new arrivals. But of course, the negativity can vary between countries, um, which you know, obviously points to the role of the, broader, of the broader social political context. And so some interesting research that's been conducted in the UK has found that there are some regional differences in terms of attitudes. So last year, um, the, the, mig the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford conducted a, um, a, a large polling study on um, UK attitudes towards immigration more generally. And what they did find was that 58% of Scottish respondents um, were negative towards immigrants compared to England and Wales, which were about 75%. So obviously, you know, there's still negative sentiment overall, but there, is, there was a significant difference between those two between England and Wales and Scotland. And similarly, this has been replicated with regards to asylum seekers as well. And in this study, they did control for other factors such as age and education, which has been known to be related to negative attitudes towards asylum seekers and migrants. 
So this is really interesting. So we've got this situation where people in Scotland generally, you know, maybe less negative. And I think it begs the question of thinking about, well, why might this be the case? And of course, it's, you know, it's, far, from, it's far from conclusive. We don't really know exactly why. Um, you could hypothesise that maybe it's to do with um, contact with immigrants, etc., um, or the level of immigration, etc. But we know that, say, for example, in Wales, the level of immigration is quite low, um, but then other parts of London, it's, it's quite high. So, as I said, it's quite difficult to know, but there have been some suggestions that um, there's a large role to play for the language of the Scottish Government, more positive than, than Westminster, but also um, the role of the Scottish media in painting a more positive picture. And I, you know, I, I make these kind of statements, um, you know, with a, I'm saying with a grain of salt, because we don't really know exactly why, but I, there is some suggestion to... to, to um, there are some reason to believe that it may, be ha may have to do with this kind of the broader social political context in this sense. Um, some studies have actually looked at the at Scottish media comparing it to, to broader um, UK media on asylum seekers and it's actually quite heartening to read some of the stuff that, that Scottish media, um, it, well at that time, I don't know what they're like exactly right now, but um, some, of the, some of the stories that they're willing to kind of publish in that sense. So again, highlights the importance of the broader political context. And I think it's actually really interesting. Of course, we're, we're in a situation here in Australia where we've got political leadership, which is absolutely appalling. And of course, in recent days, um, with the turn back votes policy with Labor. Um, but I think it might, may highlight some, some possible po positive um, avenues in terms of if we look at... Um, the, the New South Wales Premier, Mike Bed, with his, with his position on um, giving asylum seekers some you know, access to transport. So is there pot potential ways in which we can harness positive political um, leadership in that way, whilst we know that appallingly at the federal um, level it's, it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I'm just going to, a couple of conclusions. We know that so negative sentiment towards immigrants, refugees and asylum seekers is not, is not just an Australian thing, although we may think it is. Um, it, it is worldwide, but there are suggestions that there are, um, you know, common kind of underlying factors. Um, and the international research does reinforce the findings of the Australian research, but Australian research does highlight additional factors which I think are really important to, to take into, consider into consideration, as Harriet has said, around perceived injustice um, and also the um, false beliefs around uh, queue jumping, etc. So, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to discussing more about how we might try to seek to shift this, but as I said, I think the, the broader social political environment is really important to consider in, in any campaign. Thank you. I'll now invite our second speaker, Hannah Laney, who is presenting research conducted by her and Anthony Kellett on international media responses to Australia's refugee and asylum policy. Hannah and Anthony are both candidates in the Bachelor of Social Policy and Research here at Uni of New South Wales. Thank you, Harriet. Hi, everybody. Um, so my name is Hannah, as Harriet said, and I'm presenting undergraduate uh, research project that I conducted with myself and Anthony. So our topic looked at the international news media response to Australia's policy towards asylum seekers, refugees and asylum seekers. Now we decided to do this research after we did a review of the literature 
And the literature illuminated the importance news media had on the social construction of asylum seekers in Australia. Up till now though, this research had only focused on domestic media and, not had, and hadn't reached out to how international news media might influence this construction. So in order to address this gap in the literature, we propose the following research question. How is Australian asylum seeker policy socially constructed within the production, representation, and reception of international media? To answer this question, we employed a mixed method research design, and that resulted in a sample of 25 articles from four international outlets, which included The Guardian, New York Times, The New York Times International, and Al Jazeera. Um, we anchored our research around the discursive events of the Manus Island riots, which occurred in February 2014. So our sample of news articles looked at the dates three months before and after this event. We organized our news articles using quantitative content analysis, and we organized them using three criteria. First, we looked at the topic of the articles, and we found that they were we found that they were predominantly focused on Australian government policy and practice, rather than looking at the lived experiences of asylum seekers and refugees themselves. Second, we looked at the tone of the articles, which showed that they were consistently negative before and after the Manus Island riots. And lastly, we looked at the stakeholders which were represented in these news articles. And we found that politicians had the highest representation, now this correlates with previous studies, which show that the Australian government have an undue influence on the production and representation of Australian asylum seeker policy in Australia. And it is interesting to note when we looked at our stakeholder group in depth, they were overrepresented by Australian politicians and our neighboring Indonesian politicians. This might've been due to the political tension at the time, there were spying allegations and water incursions during Operation Sovereign Borders. However, this might also infer that international news media presents um, Australian policy as a solution to a domestic issue rather than being part of a global phenomenon. In addition, our research also correlates with studies that support that this government influence is shifting as international media provides a platform for alternative voices to enter into the discussion. So we see more representation from academics, lawyers, advocacy groups, and asylum seekers and refugees themselves. In addition to the content analysis, we also carried out qualitative content analysis. Um, and this resulted in a coding frame of three themes and 13 sub-themes. But for today, I will only look at the top four highest coded ones. And I'm gonna look at this in relation to our critical discourse analysis that we also conducted. So when we looked at these four themes um, and their critical discourse analysis, we found two interesting things. First, we saw that there was a prominent focus of Australia and their international relationships between international law and Indonesia. It is interesting because this, these two themes explored the notion of sovereignty. Previous literature indicates that Australian current policy is embedded in a notion of sovereignty, which is defined as the right to exclude and to remove all forms of external influence on domestic affairs. 
However, within our sample, they reconceptualize sovereignty to include international cooperation and sovereignty through regulation through international instruments, such as the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And it could be hypothesized that this reorientation might reorient negative public perceptions of asylum seekers in Australia. So our second finding indicated that international news media frequently highlighted um, the Australian government's process of othering asylum seekers. In addition, it highlighted the threat that asylum seekers face on their journey to Australia and in detention. However, our analysis shows that international news media undermines this portrayal by humanizing representations of asylum seekers and creating empathy. In addition, international news media provides a counter discourse by questioning the legality of the Australian government in relation to their international, um, international responsibilities. So this positioning of the Australian policy uh, may encourage more lenient policy orientation in the future, hopefully. I'm just speculating. So on reflection of our research, our findings do propose questions for further studies. So one of the questions is, has the construction of asylum seekers by international news media transitioned into domestic media and public perception in recent years? And that, that's, that's all. Thank you. So Professor Andrew Marcus is now going to explore attitudes to refugees, asylum seekers and immigrants in Australia. Andrew is a research professor at Monash University and has been the lead researcher on the Scanlon Foundation Social Cohesion Surveys since they began in 2007. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for the invitation to be part of this discussion. Um, also, would like to pay my respect to the traditional owners, um, their elders past and present. Just by way of introduction, um, I happen to be a refugee. Um, I came to this country as a refugee on a refugee program quite a long time ago. Um, and I thought I would just make this point because some of the things that I've got to say are probably different to what you would hear in a forum such as this. Um, like I, I try and grapple with the complexities of this issue um, and they are complex and I deal with it in a way every day. Like one of my projects is to write a history of Holocaust survivors who came to Australia. And of course the issue that always comes up with Holocaust survivors is the world's response to the refugee crisis in the 1930s, and we saw the, the result of that. So I'm going to talk for about 15 minutes. I've got quite a lot of detail here, but I'll sort of, in the interest of just getting through this material. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the problems of interpreting public opinion. I want to talk about the balance of opinion on boat arrivals, because I think that you, know, you can get lost in the small detail and not see the big picture. You've got to really 
get a good grasp of the big picture and, and then to understand why, why people hold the views that they hold. And I've gone on a journey with public opinion and, and have completely changed my view on, on many things in that process. All right, so interpreting surveys, and, and we've heard a little bit about this already, there's a wealth of surveying in Australia. We don't have a, a lack of information. I would say that uh, compared to most topics, this is one of the better research topics that we have. Uh, because it's a prominent issue, the media will often um, commission surveys um, and there's um, considerable academic research as well, although not across Australia. Like West Australia is a particular strength for academic research, uh, but it's going on elsewhere. The Scan Foundation surveys have been in the field since 2007 and we now have like a database of um, more than 20,000 respondents. Now, in terms of surveying, in terms of random surveying, that's, that's huge. It's large by international standards, not by Australian standards. So we've got a good understanding of, you know, the, the drivers of Australian opinion, what changes and what doesn't change. And if anyone wants to follow this up further, we've got a website called Mapping Australia's Population, Mapping Australia's Population, where each report is archived there as well as um, various discussion points. Is a danger that uh, people get into this area without actually having the background knowledge. It's, the way I think about it, it's like, say I was to write a paper on international law on asylum. I could do that. It would be cogent. But would I be able to do it like a, a lawyer who's worked in that field and been trained in that field? And, and so there's a danger that people actually get into this area because it's just numbers and everyone can read the numbers. Um, you know, I've sat through presentations by lawyers explaining Australian public opinion. Um, and, and it's a little bit problematic. Uh, the complexities that you've got to bear in mind is one survey isn't the same as another survey. So you've got to think in terms of like, what was the mode of surveying? For example, if you conduct an interviewer-administered survey as opposed to an online survey, you can get quite different results. You have to see, is it people using probability samples or non-probability samples? Like online survey using panels, they're non-probability samples. You have to consider sample size. For example, in the work that I do, if I've got a sample of less than 200, I don't really even look at those numbers because I don't think that... Um, you can draw huge conclusions from them. The sample profile, the margin of error. Also, question order. Question order can have a huge impact, as well as wording of questions, the response options that people are given, how you then interpret the response options. All of these will produce quite significant result, variations. But the point I would make is that when you actually use a consistent and robust methodology there's a robustness of opinion on this subject. It's not fickle. You know, it's not like the autumn wind and leaves blowing outside um, that beautiful passageway here. Um, just to illustrate this, for example, now these are surveys conducted in two separate areas. One area was in Murrow Bridge and the other one was in Shepparton. And there were 10 questions. You see there's 10 see numbers, one to 10 questions. And I've taken one response, which is say, strongly agree. And you see they're almost identical. And another example is this. This is from the Scanlon surveys, which have been going, as I say, since 2007. We have this proposition, Australia is the land of economic opportunity, where in the long run, hard work brings a better life. 
And you see, all those surveys produce basically the same result. For example, that first response, strongly agreed, it ranges from 35 to 40%. In, in surveying terms, that's identical because the best you can do is a plus or minus 3% um, margin of error. So there's a, a, on many issues, there's a robustness of opinion. And my point is that on the asylum issue, on boat arrivals, there is a robustness of opinion. And I'll demonstrate that for you. So let's now look at that, the balance of opinion on asylum seekers. And for me, the important thing is not to look at surveys in a microwave, but to look at the broad pattern. What does the broad pattern show us? Um, so let's look at survey results from the 2000s. This is 2001. Which of the following statements best describes your view on how Australia should deal with asylum seekers? Allow them to live in the community until their applications is heard. 21%. So I'm going to go quite quickly over this, but if anyone wants, you can have access to this PowerPoint. Uh, the federal court has ruled, 2001, the government acted unlawfully in detaining the refugees on the Tampa and has ordered that the boat people on Tampa be returned to the mainland. Now, this is the court, a court decision, the highest court in the land, saying this should be done. And, and what do you get? They should be returned to the mainland 19%. Now, just bear in, in mind the numbers that I'm highlighting in yellow. Turn back the boats carrying asylum seekers. These are like a number of surveys, as you can see. Do you see the consistency of the numbers over a long period of time? We're looking at, like, say, 22% plus or minus, and, and that's what you're getting. If we go to 2010 and 2015, do you oppose... Do you support or oppose the decision to resume offshore processing? Oppose... 27%. Do you support or disapprove reopening detention facilities at Manus Island and Nauru? Oppose, 18%. The government should turn back the votes when it's safe to do so. This is February 2014. Disagree, 28%. Now look for a number that goes above 28%. Have you seen one yet? Do you think the federal national, Liberal National Government is too tough or too soft on asylum seekers or is taking the right approach? Too tough. Um, same numbers. This is the Scanlon Foundation surveys. We five times, five years now, run this question. We give people four options. What should the government do? One option is turn back the boats. The second option is detain the people until they can be sent back. Temporary residents only. And the fourth option is allow permanent residents. And again, we're getting in the same range. Allow permanent residents. Our range has been from 18% to 24% over five surveys. Now, this is probably the most important part of this presentation. Because if you think you're going to change public opinion, you want to identify which segment of the Australian opinion do you think that you're going to change? So what I've done with... And because we've got this amazing database, this is now five surveys between 2010 and 2015. It's a probability sample, and aggregated, we have 8,748 respondents. Mind you, if I did it year by year, it'd be pretty much the same results, but this actually gives us more reliability. Now, we've got eight categories, eight variables and 30 categories... 
And in only one of those 30 categories, you get more than roughly 35% of people saying, yes, they should be eligible for resettlement. Only one out of 30. If we hone in on that and look at it more closely, what about young people? But amongst 18 to 24-year-olds with this very large database, you're only getting 33% of people saying they should be eligible for resettlement. Education is also a strong predictor. So if you're well-educated, you're going to be better disposed. So BA or higher, 33%. Financial situation, prosperous or well-off, 31%. Only in one group do you get out of that range... And that's people who say they're going to vote for Greens. So the danger is that advocates talk amongst themselves and that's a conversation, but it's not the conversation that occurs in mainstream Australia. Why? In the human rights discourse, there's an assumption that if you're negative towards both people, there's something wrong with you and we've got to correct you. Yes? And in some ways it's true and in some ways it's not. And that's what I want to explore. Because if you don't think that boat arrivals um, should be eligible for permanent settlement, you're not necessarily wrong. I'm questioning this notion that truth is absolute and truth is one. It's your truth and it's a valid truth, but it's not the only truth. In a way, you know, the human rights discourse sets up this puzzle and the puzzle is, um, why, why do people have these attitudes? But it's not necessarily a puzzle. Like, I'm involved in discussions with regard to young Muslim Australians and why they become radicalised. And people say, we've got to do research to find out why that occurs. Is it a puzzle? I don't think it's such a puzzle. So we have to be clear about what, what is a puzzle and what's not a puzzle and what can be explained relatively simply. We have this huge disconnect between the human rights discourse and other conversations. To give you an example, the High Commission of the UNHCR says, you know, it's a puzzle because Australia runs this large immigration program and they accept 180,000 people a year. But if you come to Australia a different way, um, it, you know, it's fine. If you come on the immigration program, it's fine. But if you come on both, something strange happens to their minds. This is not a minor function in the UN. This is the head of the agency who doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that an immigration program and boat arrivals, it's different. Or if we look at the Refugee Council of Australia, and, and you know, we have this argument that there's this huge number of people, and Australia's spending more than 600,000 people you know, locking people up on um, Nauru. How are they so stupid? Can't they do their sums? Well, I've got to tell you, they can do their sums. And they know that three years ago, the government was spending X on the boat arrivals, and this year they're spending X minus, and they know that in two years' time with the present policy, they'll be spending X minus minus. You with me? Because the program that they're implementing is very carefully costed, and they know that we're spending huge amounts at the moment, but it's actually less than we were spending two years ago and it'll be much less in three years' time. The strength of the arguments, when you start to explore them, you start to understand that they're actually not so telling and yet in the advocacy circles they seem more powerful. 
like the Q-jumper argument. Are they Q-jumpers or not? And in one way, people are not Q-jumpers because they can't get in a queue. And in another way, they are. Because there's many queues that we would all like to get into and we can't get in them. So the public well understands that that's the lie of the land. People would like to get into queues and they can't get in the queues because that's how societies are structured. Governments always are making decisions about where to place the queue. We don't have universal queues as a feature of life. So I could go through all of those arguments and show that you can actually unpick them and understand why they don't resonate. So what explains it? Hypothesis one, people are bigoted, they're ignorant. It's the media, it's the politicians. If we start to unpack these points, first of all, Australians are relatively very open towards immigration. Australia and Canada are the countries most open to immigration. What this shows is these are people who think immigration intake is too high and in recent years that's been about 40%, 40% of the average and the majority don't think that is too high. If you ask people about multiculturalism, has it been good for Australia? You're getting like 85% of people endorse the proposition that multiculturalism is good for Australia. If you ask third generation Australians, do you like me meeting with people with, from other cultures? Only 5% of people say I don't like meeting people from other cultures. Do you feel positive or neutral about refugees who've been assessed overseas and found to be victims of persecution and in need of protection, they're coming to Australia? And you're getting about 70% of people saying, yes, I'm happy about the humanitarian program as such. All right, is it about ignorance? We've got to inform people. So the hypothesis is the problem is misinformation. And I say to you, on what issues are people well-informed? So you're starting from a premise that usually people are well-informed and make reasonable judgments. On this issue, they're not well-informed. If people were well-informed, you think we'd have the governments that we have today. People are not well-informed. So instead of having this notion that facts determine your views, I take the view, position that values determine perceptions. Values determine how you construct facts. So it's not a simple thing of... You know, let me correct you on that point. With regard to media, don't start off with this assumption that people are passive consumers of media. They're more likely to be active consumers of media. You don't go in the morning down to the news agents and say, could I have the paper? You know, there's a decision made. I'll have the Australian, thanks. I'll have the Financial Review. I'll have the Daily Telegraph. People are making a decision. You don't turn on the TV and say, oh, what, you know, random. You choose. Do media outlets shape their demographics or do media outlets cater to their demographics? Well, it's not either or. It's an interaction, isn't it? But there's a lot of truth in the position that the media caters to its demographics and works with its demographics. Could politicians be more negative, this race to the bottom? Well, actually, politicians could be much more negative. And I actually was going to explain here how they could be more negative, but I don't want to explain it. But they could be much more negative, and they know it. So, reflection. On the best available indicators, um, with regard to the humanitarian program, there's a strong majority of people who favour the humanitarian program. 
with regard to boat arrivals, the surveys that I've looked at, the range of people positive towards boat arrivals is 18 to 28%. So the second hypothesis, which explains public opinion for me, is that we have to understand that people have serious domestic concerns. People living in poverty, people without housing. You know, at any one time, 105,000 people in Australia do not have secure accommodation, of whom 20 to 30,000 might be sleeping rough. There's serious problems of unemployment. There's real issues with regard to border control. They're not imagined. There's also values which characterise Australian society as other societies. And one of the characteristics of Australian society is that this country has had always a tradition of very tight border controls. So we're dealing with complex realities. We're not dealing with one truth, one universe of meaning, but different universes of meaning. And the other universes, other than the human rights discourse, are not to be simply dismissed, I think, as bigotry. Thank you. Our final speaker, Sam Cooper, is now going to hobble to the podium. You might prefer to sit there, actually, if you want a chair. Um, and she's going to discuss research conducted by her and Erin Olenichak um, on representations of asylum seekers in the rural Australian press. Sorry. Um, thanks, Harriet, and good morning, everyone. So I did some research with Erin and two other students in our social research and policy capstone subject uh, into how refugees and asylum seekers are represented in the regional press. So since 2004, Australia has actively resettled refugees to regional areas. Uh, for example, last year, the Safe Haven Enterprise Visa was introduced, which is a temporary Protection visa requiring residents in regional areas. Sorry. Um, there's been extensive study of the media's role in influencing and reflecting public opinion about refugees and asylum seekers, but limited research has focused specifically on the regional press. So to address this gap, we examined recent articles in the local papers of four New South Wales towns with large resettled refugee populations. Um, we conducted a content analysis, quantitative content analysis, to understand the overall tenor uh, and the voices present in the re regional media discourse. Compared to existing studies of major metropolitan papers, we found that the regional papers were more positive in tone uh, and relied less on government sources and referenced a wider range of voices, including advocacy organisations, legal professionals and refugees and asylum seekers themselves. Um, interestingly, this may be a new trend as a brief analysis of articles published in the same uh, regional papers in October 2001 showed a higher rate of negativity uh, and more reliance of, of government rhetoric than we found in the past 10 months. Um, our content analysis also showed a very clear distinction between articles on local topics and articles on national topics, um, of which you can see some examples here. So stories with a local focus were almost all positive in tone towards refugees and asylum seekers, while um, the topics, sorry, stories on national topics were slightly more neutral in tone. 
um, but still very positive and much more positive than the Metropolitan Papers. Um, local stories also quoted refugees and asylum seekers themselves and relied far less on government sources than the stories on national topics. Uh, we used a critical discourse analysis process to examine the nuances of what appears to be a broadly positive discourse. And we found that in locally written articles about local people, refugees were depicted in a very humanising way. Um, almost all of these stories about local people were about refugees who'd been resettled through the offshore program, um, except for a couple um, about an asylum seeker who drowned in the river at Wagga. Wagga. Um, so regional journalism does have a community-building function, and in line with this, these positive representations um, very much seemed aimed at building the social capital of local refugees and connecting residents with their experiences. So the regional press may be challenging the familiar boundaries of the refugee debate through these local stories. However, this community-building approach did not extend to articles on national topics, so um, things like legislation um, and major events. While there were, some, there were some stories about local advocacy efforts, so, for example, a vigil for Reza Barati, who died in the Manus Island riots, um, but these weren't linked to national policy or any national events. Those stories were always, um, uh, sorry, separate from anything going on locally. Um, we did do an analysis of some articles responding to the Manus Island riot in February. We found that the national discourse was replicated in those stories, um, uh, particularly two articles in two Fairfax-owned regional papers. And these articles drew very, very heavily from the AAP Bulletin Wire article for their, and for their stories, and they didn't include any local interpretation or any local voice. Uh, so the recreation of the national discourse around refugees and asylum seekers was also further evidenced in our analysis of Letters to the Editor, where uh, the negative letters frame the issue in terms of policy and threats to security and identity and government responses, while positive letters focused on the humanity of refugees. Um, so our research provides some preliminary evidence of positive community-building representations of refugees and asylum seekers in regional areas, but there's a big disparity between depiction of local and national issues. And we're kind of thinking that um, the inclusion of local voices in responses to national events and legislation may be a potential avenue to influence attitudes in regional areas. Thank you very much. <laughs>